0: Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day, and exploring the different ways that companies and governments use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International.
1: And I'm Caitlin, and I'm PI's Senior Campaigns Officer. Hi.
0: And today, we're fortunately joined by our colleague, Elliot Bendinelli, who is currently leading our work on corporate exploitation.
1: Because this week, we're talking to Corey Doctorow. Corey Doctorow you have probably heard of, and if you haven't, he's an author who's been writing fiction and non-fiction kind of in and around the digital rights space since the 90s. He's worked with the EFF, he helps out the Open Rights Group, and he's currently releasing a book with Rebecca Giblin called Chokepoint Capitalism, which covers a lot of the things that Elliot's been working on, both as corporate exploitation lead, but also as someone involved in our project called Working for the Algorithm on the labour marketplace for content creators. Hey, this is Caitlin from The Edit. Quick warning, this podcast does involve some swearing, up to you and including the F word. If you like a version of this podcast without the swearing or with the swearing bleeped, you can find it on our website at pbcy.org forward slash tech bleep. So first question we wanted to ask is, what is choke point capitalism?
2: Well, choke point capitalism is our word for describing a kind of modern take on an old phenomenon, which is monopsony. Monopsony is the less sexy cousin of monopoly. It's the one uh, no one's heard of because no one ever made a best-selling board game about it. But monopsony is a situation in which there's not enough buyers, in which buyers have power over sellers. So if you think about a world where we have five major publishers one major distributor, one major brick-and-mortar national retailer, one major global ebook retailer, three giant record labels that own the three giant publishers, one major cinema chain, and so on. Each of those entities has corralled an audience in its own little domain. And if you want to bring your work to market, if you want to reach that audience, you have to pass through a choke point that they man. And as you pass through it, whatever it is that you've got that is of value to them, they will take away from you. And if you decline, then they will just decline to let you see their audience. And so this monopsony is important because our theory of monopoly enforcement for the last 40 years, our antitrust theory, has said that so long as you are keeping prices low, it doesn't really matter if you're forming monopolies. And low prices are one of the ways that you can corral an audience. If you can price things at unsustainably low prices, that is to say at prices that drive your sellers out of business, the suppliers in your supply chain, but so long as there's more suppliers willing to step up and make materials that you can bring to your customers, then, you know, you can trap a whole bunch of customers in your little corral because no one can afford to enter the market and lose money and nobody else has the market power to force someone else to lose money to uh, compete with you.
1: And... A big part of the book and the work that you've been doing is around specifically creative people, creative content creators. It sounds like a fairly obvious question, I imagine, but why is it particularly relevant to those people?
2: Well, it's not just creators, although that's been a domain that I've been involved with for a long time. Creators are one of those suppliers that will sell material, make new material and sell it for prices that are so low that they can't afford to do it. And they'll just keep doing it. You know, there's that old joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus, and his dad finds him and says, son, come home, and he takes the shovel that he's using to shovel elephant shit, and he says, what, and quit show business? So creators have a long history of of making material at unsustainably low prices. There's another wrinkle to this, though, which is that creators have a mechanism that is supposed to prevent them from being ripped off, which is copyright. And the thing about most of the bundles of right that come with copyright is that it's alienable. That is to say, you can sell it. That's the whole point, right? Here is your right to have your book published. You are hypothetically the only person who can publish your book unless you sell that right to someone else and then they can publish your book. And what we've done for 40 years as the incomes and livelihoods of creative workers has declined and declined and declined is expanded copyright. We've given copyright longer terms. We've given it lower evidentiary burdens for enforcement, higher statutory damages, greater scope uh, covering new kinds of works. And at every turn, it has made the entertainment industry bigger, but it has resulted in a real terms decline in the share of income going to the creators. So. You can see this operating a bit like a schoolyard where your kid gets bullied for their lunch money every day, right? The bullies are out there saying, won't someone think of the hungry children? Please give them more lunch money. And the bullies do get richer, right? The more lunch money that you give your kid, the more the bullies get. And while your kid is on the way to the schoolyard, they might feel very rich. But once they get to the schoolyard, they're left with nothing. It doesn't matter how much lunch money you're giving them. So. This is, I think, characteristic of a lot of problems in the 21st century, including privacy-related problems, which is that it's largely conceptualized as a series of individual problems. People are just making bad choices, and really what we have is a structural problem. We have a problem where markets have been rigged to line the pockets of intermediaries, a small number of intermediaries. At the expense of the creators who produce the value that makes those intermediaries rich. And the problem isn't intermediaries per se. You know, when I was growing up in Toronto, we had a a writer. I loved him. He was a local guy, a crank. He called himself Craig Kolodny. That wasn't his real name. And he would publish his own chapbooks of very weird short fiction. And um, he would sell them on the street with a sign around his neck that said things like, very famous Canadian author, buy my books. For a long time, he just wore a sign that said, Margaret Atwood. <laughs> 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 and you know, <laughs> bless crowd Lodny and all who sail on him. But uh, not every writer needs to be standing on a street corner with a sign around their neck to sell their books. Intermediaries are fine. The problem is when the intermediary starts to call the shots when the intermediary becomes the reason for the industry as opposed to the other way around where the intermediary is a facilitator to connect audiences and creators.
1: I know we don't want to talk too much about like personal choices versus structural choices but you've been kind of making an interesting personal choice for a long time in releasing creative commons e-versions of your books and kickstarting DRM-free audiobooks. You know, <laughs> I got
0: to say I love the fact that used to ask people to donate to libraries, uh-huh. the equivalent
2: of the book value. I thought yeah. that was Well, no, to, to buy copies for to libraries. buy copies for libraries. Yeah, we, I facilitated right. that. So I had a list of libraries that wanted copies. And people who downloaded the book for free and wanted to sustain the work and thank me could buy a copy for a library. Schools as well. And that worked great, but it was expensive and unwieldy. Now I do this with the Kickstarter campaign for the audiobook for Choke point Capitalism. We raised about $100,000 to fund this independent production, pre-selling the book, pre-selling the audio, pre-selling the ebook, selling a few interesting premiums along the way. And um, one of the things we invited our, our backers to do was buy copies for libraries. And then we advertised to libraries, look, we have this pool of hundreds of copies of the book in print that we can send to you for free that our backers have bought. Because the thing is you can't just send books to libraries, right? I'm a recovering library worker. Libraries do not just want books sort of thrown over the transom (laughs) at them, right? You you need to work with their collection development people who want the book, who want to accession it because they think that their patrons want to read it. So it's got to be a managed process. Which street corner in Toronto? Out of curiosity, he used to stand on Young Street. So he used to stand around Young and Bloor. He Young also used Bloor. to stand in front of Honest Ed's. Oh, He would stand. On, uh, he would stand across the street from um, the uh, Church of Scientology around uh, Young and Wellesley. Young and in Wellesley. front of the big strip bar there. Uh, <laughs> he was. He was a remarkable character. There's a great little documentary about him.
0: Oh, I he also used up. to
2: do weird pranks, like he would um, retype award-winning works of Canadian fiction. And then submit them under his name to national writing competitions and then publish the rejection letters. Oh,
1: beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, wonderful.
2: He was mad. He was great.
1: <laughs>
3: Obviously, there are a few parallels between the work you've been doing and what we've been working on at PI. So we've had a project. It's fairly new. It's been a year and a half, but we've called it Working for the Algorithm. And really, what we're looking at is the relationship between workers, including content creators, and the platforms or the app they work with. And there are a number of issues with that. Some of them you mentioned. What we looked at more specifically is the power imbalance that exists mm-hmm. and how this relationship is basically, it ends up with people producing in order to please an algorithm. So you don't have this historic relation with a boss where you're talking to someone, and they can get an understanding of what you're doing. Instead, everything you're doing is kind of dictated by either the promotion algorithm of a platform like Twitch or YouTube or with some sort of algorithm for, say, a devilier app like Uber or Deliveroo. And so a lot of like the work that these people produced is dictated by these platforms and these companies. What we found interesting in particular in that is how this is changing whole relationship to work. Like, well, there's, I there's mean, this is
2: a subject I'm very interested <laughs> in. <Cool>. So <laughs> I, I want to say that, you know, Notwithstanding not wanting to talk too much about individual and systemic solutions, the second half of the book is just shovel-ready technical systemic solutions. It's nothing that individuals can do, although it is things that individuals who are part of a polity, like a political group or a pressure group or an artist organization or you know a parliament or a regulator or a technical collective building software can do. And you know when we were shopping the book around, we had an editor who said, well, now, I really like this book. But I can't buy it because all of the solutions in the second half are systemic and there's nothing an individual can do. And it's just going to bum people out. And we're like, dude, you are so close to getting it. But, you know, (laughs) you you can't recycle your way out of climate change, right? You're not going to shop your way out of monopoly. So we wanted to bring in some systemic solutions. And as you say, this algorithmic stuff is a big deal. And it's not just a big deal. Because you can be promoted, it's also a big deal because you can be removed. Mm -hmm. You know, the Article 13, now Article 17 of the European Copyright Directive of 2019, is a, a rule that says anyone who has a platform where copyrighted works can be posted needs to have a copyright filter. And that copyright filter needs to automatically remove things that appear to be copyright violations. Well, those filters are very expensive to build, $100 million to build YouTube's content ID. That's, you know, one millionth of what they're proposing that these filters will do under Article 17. That is a choke point because it means that only a small number of firms that can afford these very big capital investments are going to be able to host content in the European Union. But it's also a mechanism for wage theft. So we see this with YouTube especially where you have this copy strike system where if you get three copy strikes, your videos are demonetized, your account is taken away and so on. Well, a lot of the large firms will claim copyright very broadly. So Sony uploads its catalog of classical music. There's three music publishers and three record labels. They're the same companies. They control between them 70% of the recordings, 65% of the compositions. And Sony has most of the classical catalog. And so they upload all of it and because of the way copyright filters work youtube can't really distinguish between a sony recording and just a classical performer especially during the pandemic where people were doing their performances at home and uploading them to youtube and making money from the ads that were added to the videos and sony claims them all in a semi-automated way using youtube's algorithm when that's contested Sony typically just says, no, 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 that really is ours. So even when there's a chance for a human in the loop, they just say, no, that is ours. And so what you can do as a creator is you can either suck it up and say, I guess Sony owns all my creative output, even though they never give me a dime. Or you can fight with Sony. And if Sony gets you a copy strike after three of those, you lose your YouTube channel. And so if you spent years building up an audience, you're just screwed. This is one of the reasons that so many YouTubers are interested in things like Patreon Because the ad revenue is so variable. So there's a group in in the European Union, a little kind of ad hoc collective called Algorithms Exposed. I don't know if you know their work. They do reverse engineering of algorithms. So they have a ton of headless browsers, they have a plugin you can run, and they're trying to figure out what it is that causes things to be up and down ranked on the different platforms. They have one for Amazon, they have one for Pornhub, they have one for YouTube, they have one for TikTok, they, they, they might have some others. And, and the way that, that they approach this is that algorithms are kind of a form of wage theft. If you think of yourself as having a boss, which is the YouTube algorithm, mm-hmm. the boss says, go make some videos and I'll pay you some money. And then the end of the month comes and you open your paycheck and your paycheck's half the size you thought it would be. And the boss says, well, you broke some rules. And you say, well, what rules did I break? And the boss says, I can't tell you what rules you broke because then you'll figure out how to break the rules without getting in trouble. <laughs> so the rules are a secret, but you're going to have to take it from me. You broke the rules, so I took half your money, right? And so they they want to help all different kinds of performers figure out how to not get their money stolen, their, their creative wages stolen. One of the solutions we talk about in the book, we call it radical interoperability. At the Electronic Frontier Foundation where we work, we call it competitive compatibility. It's sometimes also called adversarial interoperability. It's a lot of unwieldy technical terms, but basically, it's securing the right of third parties to reverse engineer and modify existing services. So that's what our Algorithms Exposed is doing, right? They've built some plugins that are built without the sanction of these firms. The plugins sort of modify the way the service works. Every ad blocker is an example of this. It's just modifying the web pages that you're using. Same with tracker blockers, any kind of privacy technology generally is this kind of concom com, competitive compatibility. Competitive compatibility was once you know, a very core element. Of, of digital technology development. You know, when Apple was fighting with Microsoft over Microsoft Office, and Microsoft Office was like absolutely vital to work in an office environment. All your colleagues were sending you Word documents and Excel documents and so on. But the version of Microsoft Office for the Mac was the most cursed piece of software Microsoft had ever made, and you have to think it was somewhat deliberate, right? I was a CIO back then. And, you know, it, it just waving the Mac office install disk near a computer that had some <laughs> office files on it would corrupt them forever. And so we ended up, you know, taking our designers or the people who had the Macs, sometimes the CEO would have a Mac too, we would just buy a PC and we'd stick it on their desk next to their Mac to to do office documents with. That was so unwieldy that we stuck big graphics cards in those PC towers. And we threw away their Macs. So Steve Jobs understood that this was a big problem. And he didn't just grovel with Bill Gates to make a better version of Office for the Mac. He got some of his technical staff to reverse engineer the Office file formats for Microsoft, and they built Pages, Keynote, and Numbers, the iWork suite, which just maintained compatibility between the two platforms. Now, if you tried to do that to Apple today, right, if you were to, like, make an interoperable iTunes stack or, you know, a runtime for iOS apps or whatever, they would reduce you to radioactive rubble.
0: And what's magical about what Apple would do The argument they would use is that it's privacy
2: protection. Oh, yeah. They would say, we're protecting you, right? That's right. And they do protect you, right? Like iOS has a bunch of privacy protections, unless you're in China, in which case iOS is a way to stop you from installing privacy tools. The problem with the fortress is that it can become a prison, right? And if you don't get to leave the fortress, the temptation to make it a prison is you know unbeatable, right? That's that's how you get prisons out of what should be fortresses that are defending you. And so you know, as you say, like there are these problems with creators where they're locked into these silos. I think a lot of people who put energy into earning money from Twitter are feeling this this week. Yeah. They're worried about their future there, and there is no easy way to take your audience with you if you leave Twitter. Yeah. Like Twitter doesn't facilitate it. Mm-hmm. Um, now you could imagine a plugin that both audiences and creators could use, where it would just be like a mail forwarding service. You could imagine that just sort of being layered on top of it, and you can understand why Twitter wouldn't like it, right? Because you know the higher the switching costs are, the worse a firm can treat you. And imagine that you will still stay, because so long as the switching costs are higher than the penalties that you incur by staying then those penalties can be, you know, brutal and you'll still stick around, you know. People stay in all kinds of bad situations because the good part is important.
1: And you've written an article called How to Leave Dying Social Media Platforms Without Leaving Your Friends, which yeah. is an issue that we struggle with all the time because, you know, there is genuine value to people and being able to hang out and talk to their friends. And so we want to talk about privacy and the things that people can do. But we also don't want to say, leave Facebook, just leave Facebook, mm-hmm. because that doesn't really deal with the fact that people find genuine value in Facebook. Sure. And that's fine. And then one of the solutions that you have just discussed and I talk about more is interoperability and how to force interoperability is kind of one of the bigger, I would say, questions on in terms of the next phase, the next steps of the internet. And the Fediverse, or the federalized internet, which, if you're interested, PI is on. Um, <laughs> on As Mastodon, on Yeah, um, Yeah, on Feertube, all, all the various Fediverse apps, but doesn't really... Solve that problem because it still requires the switch, right? Uh huh. Um, in the same way that Signal doesn't solve the WhatsApp problem because it still requires you yep. to switch. Like, what is the best way of forcing interoperability on top of into around those platforms?
2: So funny you should ask because literally the last thing I did before leaving my hotel in London this morning was turn in the first draft of a book for Verso about this called The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. Nice. They changed the title. It had a better title. It used to be called Seize the Means of Computation, a Big Tech Disassembly Manual. They didn't like that. <laughs> but anyway, in that book, I take a stab at laying out what I call an administratable policy of interrupt, because there are some real problems with the two major strains of interrupt that we can imagine, right? One is a mandate where you say, here is a standard for allowing two different platforms to talk to each other's services adhere to the standard. And then the other one is, we're just not going to let you stop people who try to reverse engineer stuff and plug stuff into your service. So adversarial interoperability, mandatory interoperability, sort of managed service and guerrilla warfare are the two different ways of imagining it. And they both have their problems, right? So with, with mandated interoperability, you have the sort of meta problem of how do you make a good standard? And there's a couple of chapters on that in the book. It's hard. What
0: are the examples you use in the book?
2: Well, of how standards can go wrong. (laughs) Um, So the big one for me was a fight that I worked on really early at EFF. It was after Bush v. Gore, after the contested 2000 election, and it was a voting machine standard. So the Supreme Court ordered, and then subsequently Congress passed a law requiring standardization of voting machines on a very tight timeline, but also because voting machines were a dumpster fire. And I think this is one of the weird things about what sociologists call schismogenesis, which is like... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, as someone who for 20 years has been warning people that voting machines are terrible dumpster fires, mm-hmm. the fact that unhinged right-wing conservative conspiracists are saying voting machines are dumpster fires does not mean they're good. <laughs> they're still bad. I mean, they're not, no, no one stole the election in 2020, but voting machines are terrible. Yeah. And in fact, one of the things we've been saying for 20 years about voting machines is that they make it easy for people to discredit elections because they are insecure and they they do make it hard to know how far you should trust an election. So, the IEEE, which is one of the big sort of very sober-sided standards bodies, was charged with standardizing voting machines and they so they the standards committee was composed of all of the major voting machine vendors led by Diebold, who subsequently actually just stopped selling voting machines because it was so controversial. I was
0: wondering because I haven't heard that. name. Yeah, they
2: Maybe just stopped. Just... It was just like, oh, this is gross. <laughs> so so Diebold led, the, led this group and they said, all right, you know what? Standardizing voting machines in time for the next election impossible. So what we're going to do is a descriptive standard, which is to say we are going to describe the voting machines that exist in the field, that is the ones that were the source of all the oh problems in 2000. Gosh. We are going to call them the standard. Oh god. And it was just bonkers. So, okay, how do you get a good standard? It's hard when you got a monopoly. Because, you know, the stakeholders who are in the standards committee are dominated by the firms that have the most money, which are the firms that are the monopolists. There's a a, a joke from Ireland, not an Irish joke, a joke from Ireland, whose punchline is, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. Right? Once your sector has monopolies in it, it's very hard to demonopolize because the monopolies become too big to fail and too big to jail. But assuming you get a, a good standard, and I have some stuff about how we might do that, then you have the problem that the big incumbent firms that have a lot of users do have a duty that they erratically but significantly serve to keep those users safe, right? Facebook has many privacy problems, Mm -hmm. but Facebook also has an army of skilled security engineers who stop the most eye-watering, hair-curling privacy invasions Mm -hmm. every day, all day long. And if that API has a problem, that standard, interface between Facebook and the Fediverse has a problem, you want them to shut it off. You want them to go, oh, someone's exfiltrating a billion users' data. Let's shut that down and figure it out. The problem is that figuring out whether or not Facebook actually thought that there was something wrong, separate from the question whether there was something wrong, because if they've got a good faith belief, you still want them to shut it down. So distinguish between whether Facebook had a legitimate belief that something was wrong or that it was a pretext to make using the Fediverse suck right? To to teach investors and consumers and entrepreneurs not to bet against Facebook because they'll just sabotage your products. It's very hard. It's a fact-intensive question. And to a first approximation, all the engineers qualified to evaluate that question are Facebook employees. So... Seven years go by while you wait to figure out whether Facebook was cheating. (laughs) What are you going to do, right? Mm. Really hard. So that's the problem of mandates is that they're brittle. They're very strong. They're very rigid. They're very brittle. And then there's adversarial interoperability, ComCom, reverse engineering. So imagine that you spend a lot of time looking at Facebook. You think of, say, 15 different ways that you can interconnect with Facebook. We withdraw from Facebook the right to invoke copyright, patents, cybersecurity, contract, non-disclosure, non-compete against rivals who can show that the activity that they're engaged in earned in furtherance of a rule that mandates interoperability. So we're engaged in activity for this purpose. We're not violating privacy law. We're not violating something else. So it's a bit like a slap law. Facebook sues you. You go to court. You say, this is a pretext that we're not violating privacy. We're not stealing their copyrights. We're just interconnecting here. So we give them that right. So you stockpile, say, 10 of them. So you create a bot or a a scraper or a reverse-engineered alternative client that's allowing your users to talk to their friends on Facebook and vice versa, back and forth, back and forth. Facebook shuts it down, you roll out the next one. Facebook shuts it down, you roll out the next one. Stuff keeps breaking. It's slow, it's erratic, but it works, right? It doesn't rely on Facebook being good faith. In fact, it assumes they're not. So all things being equal, Facebook would probably prefer to do the managed system than the unmanaged one. The unmanaged one is a source of unquantifiable risk. Facebook does not like surprises because their investors don't like surprises, right? You may have noticed Facebook has lost (laughs) some shocking number and that every time they do an investor disclosure where they're like, we thought that our growth would be 3%, it was 2.2%, they lose $100 million, right? The people whose individual investment portfolios are most Facebook heavy are the decision makers at Facebook who would Mm -hmm. make the call to drive people to this adversarial interop. So in an ideal world, they would have the kind of self-preservation instinct, not a kind of public spiritedness, right? But just like a kind of shrewdness that would make them color within the lines, on the mandate. But of course, nobody ever lost money betting against the hubris of tech leaders, so maybe they would cheat. And if they cheat, you can fall back to ComCom. So I think of this as being like two-part epoxy, right? You have this stuff that's rigid and brittle and strong, and you have this stuff that's sticky and malleable and you know doesn't last long, but it can get into all the cracks, and you put them together and you get something that's both, right, that's resilient. And so that's my interop plan. The question of how you get legalized adversarial interop is hard. You know, we could pass this interoperator's defense. You could also just like pass a mandate like the Digital Markets Act in the EU or the Access Act in the US and then wait for Facebook and the other big tech companies to cheat because they are pathologically incapable of not cheating, right? And when they cheat, you throw the book at them. And wait for them to cry uncle and offer a settlement. And the settlement can be a special master, adult supervision. So it works like a slap suit, except it's internal, where before they get to sue anyone, the special master has to look at the suit and make sure it's not pretextual. And then says, all right, you can sue them because they're actually violating your copyright or stealing your user's data or whatever, as opposed to just furthering the goal of these mandates. So that's my kind of uh, big picture administratable remedy for all of this stuff. I don't know. If it would work but i think it's the most plausible because it addresses all the ways in which either one can fail
0: just to geek out for a second on the issue that so many of us are fascinated by when it comes to interoperability is messaging yeah and what if the competitor is not necessarily open but it is a state and so they want an interoperability service with iMessage. And we know the problem isn't necessarily protocol, it's identity-based and what actually happens, whether it's the pilfering the data or just having other users that aren't authenticated by Apple using it. That kind of breaks something at a different level.
2: So, yeah, end-to-end encrypted messaging is obviously like an incredibly important domain to be thinking about when we think about interoperability. It does have these network effect drivers. That's how messaging services get so big so quick. Once they hit a tipping point, just everybody has to sign up to them to be on them. You know, if you've ever had a kid who plays a sport, there's often a mandatory messaging tool that goes with the sport that isn't like dictated by the league. But you just can't get your kid to games unless you're on Facebook Messenger or something. So, there are these strong drivers. So... The Digital Markets Act, which is the first mandated interop in the West, the Chinese Cyberspace Directive has some mandated interop too, but it's different. It says we're going to do some mandates for all kinds of technology and we're starting with N10 encrypted messaging. And they say that very blithely, like, well, this will just be simple. We'll just start here with this easy stuff, right? And I don't think it's all bad faith. I think there's some bad faith. Obviously governments have fought against N10 encrypted messaging for 20 plus years. Right, This goes back to the clipper chip, to the Clinton era. There have been fights over end-to-end encrypted messaging and the idea that people shouldn't be able to have secrets the governments can't intercept. And so some of this, I'm sure, is being driven by those same elements. It would be naive to assume that they kind of looked over what their colleagues in the competition bureaus were doing and said, well, you know, technically that's not national security, so we should probably keep our fingers out of it right? It would just be ungentlemanly to involve ourselves, right? It just seems that I think we should operate on the assumption that at least some of this is being driven by that. But I also think that if you are the median bureaucrat of uniform density on a frictionless surface in a hypothetical universe, you probably have never experienced federated social media. Like you don't remember Usenet. You were never on Fidonet. But every day, you take your German SIM phone, turn it on in Brussels, and send a text to your Dutch colleague who's on holiday in Spain. And it just works, right? Interoperable messaging is a thing you do all day long. Now, S7, SMS, they are goddamn dumpster fires. They're so bad. But they don't know that, right? Because they work, right? Like there are lots of things that work well but fail badly. You Emails. Know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, like... A plane that gets extra fuel mileage by not having landing gear works really great. It just fails badly. As they say, all mushrooms are edible once. You know. So I think that there's just an element of imaginative collapse here that they just can't imagine what it would be like to use federated social media. Now, to your question, imagine that the DMA pops up and it says, Apple has to expose an API for iMessage to any rival that adheres to a set of policies which is what the DMA says. And they'll exchange messages on this way. So you have a state-owned enterprise in Belarus, which is where my grandfather's from. And Belarus is a horrible basket case. Its government is terrible. They spy on people all the time. They buy a lot of off-the-shelf spy tech, often from British companies. And Belarus joins so that, for example, its diasporic population, people like me, when they're talking to their family in Minsk, are sending messages that the government can intercept. So this is definitely a risk, right? It is a risk that can be moderated by either party by saying, please just use iMessage, right? Don't use Belarus message. Don't use B message, use iMessage. It's also a risk that you could imagine heading off at the API level by Apple saying, We cannot get assurances from Belarus that are credible that it is adhering to the rules about how it handles these messages. And so Apple hypothetically under the DMA could deny access, right? The API access in these mandates always comes with some regulatory limits because it's not just that a government could do it. Cambridge Analytica could rather than using an ad API could just use an interoperability API to do all of the things that it did. I think that that's the right answer. It's not a great answer. It still has a problem. And I think it's worth thinking about the, the changing enforcement regimes of national networks over the last 20 years, where the first times that you had companies from the West, from quote unquote free countries that acceded to surveillance demands, it was because they felt like they needed to have a sales office in country in order to maximize the revenue that they would get, for example, from being in China. So Yahoo, this was Yahoo. And it wasn't that they couldn't make money from China, right? It was that the way that they would maximize the revenue from China was by having people on the ground. And what that meant was that there was someone you could arrest. And so Yahoo then had a reason to comply with the rules because otherwise their people would be rounded up and stuck in a gulag. And you know, you saw Google, Briefly put some people on the ground in China, then get hacked by the Chinese government and then say, actually, we're going to move our people to Hong Kong and we're going to have a nearby sales office. We're not going to have an in-country sales office. When the national firewall started to pop up, the nature of this started to change a little because then you had another possibility, which was we are going to block access to your service at the border if you don't comply with our rules if you don't give us lawful interception extraordinary access whatever you want to call it and that's when smaller countries started to get in in, on the act right it was countries that were not so big that there was a reason to stick a sales office there you could afford not to maximize your revenue and a you know ethiopia say relatively low population relatively economically poor you could stick an office nearby if Ethiopia had a lawful interception rule. But if Ethiopia says that we're going to block you at the border, then you get much more compliance nexus, right? Much more compliance reach. You also get scope for things like data localization, where, you know, you saw this with Russia first, but lots of places where they said, keep all of our national users' data in the country. And GDPR, and, as well. GDPR. and And I was going to say, some of this was couched in the rhetoric of privacy washing. Right? You know, the European Union has data localization, why shouldn't we? That's clearly consistent with human rights. There's nothing facially inconsistent with human rights about data localization, otherwise the European Union couldn't do it, right? And it's true to a point, but also the reason Russia wants to do data localization is not the same reason many of the governments in the European Union want to do it, <laughs> though not all of them. <laughs>
1: The question I kind of want to ask when speaking of government is you've also been writing a bit about public-private partnerships, Uh which are in some ways one of my...
0: One of your two or three?
1: Two or three baby projects. But what has monopoly ownership and kind of concentration of power done to public-private partnerships and government surveillance? Well,
2: the example that comes to mind when you mention that in the British context is the Goldacre Report. So Ben Goldacre, who's an evidence-based medicine specialist, really sat down to engage with how to do research on NHS data, which is like a very important question. You know, I would like to have the medical insights that are latent in NHS data surfaced. I think it would be good for our species, for this country, for the world. I also can see how it can go horribly wrong. And it has gone horribly wrong in the past, right? Those public-private partnerships with the NHS have produced debacles. And so Ben says, all right, well, well, we'll use something that is already understood, which is the trusted research environment. So you have all of the data on NHS run servers. And nobody except the NHS can touch those. There's audit logs. We make it secure as best as we can. We, we do all of the things that you would do if you're being prudential. And then we invite researchers to send us software programs that we can audit that analyze that data. And we send them the output of the analysis. You have a research question you want to ask of the data. We give you the answer to that question. In order to make the trusted research environment trusted, we make it transparent. So we make it free and open source software. We describe and have audited the environment in which it's maintained, the hardware configurations, all of those things that you would need to know to know that it was secure. And ideally, that means that we build it ourselves because if you ask Cooper to build it, they're just going to charge you a fortune to build something that has historically not been very good. But also that they want to be able to sell to another client. Because a lot of the times when you order bespoke software from PwC or one of the other big consultancies, what they're actually doing is taking something they've already built for someone else, filing the serial numbers off and handing it to you. And periodically, there are scandals where people you know, look through the code or the comments or the documentation and they find someone else's name in there, right? Welcome to your bespoke custom 10 million pound software package, customer A. And you're like, wait a second, who is customer A? I am customer B. This is a bit like calling out your lover's name when you're with your partner. <laughs> you know, this is this is a, it's a very embarrassing thing when it happens, but it happens with surprising frequency. Oh, and a, and a funny thing that not many people know is that for at least a couple of months when Twitter launched, all through its privacy policy, it made reference to Flickr <laughs> <laughs> because they just copy-pasted it and no one had read it. So, you know, that I think sort of describes how having state capacity is different from being able to contract with third parties, right? It's different from having money because obviously the exchequer has as many pounds as it wants, right? This is, there, there are things that constrain the spending of HMG, but the number of pounds isn't one of them. Right. Whether there are things for sale in those pounds is different. Well, but again, like that's another way of saying what's for sale in them. Right. There are lots of things that are imports where the price is going to go up and down. But, you know, there are a lot of things in the United Kingdom that are manifestly for sale in pounds. Right. Like the labor of people who live in Britain. Which, you know, given that those people eventually have a tax liability they have to settle that is only ever denominated in sterling, they're going to need to get some sterling somewhere. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of baseline of value there. So developing that capacity within HMG and not having to wrangle with a big five consultancy is key to doing things like figuring out how to save millions of people's lives and deliver healthcare more cheaply. Because otherwise, people aren't going to opt into this package because they're not going to trust it for very good reasons. They're not going to trust it.
1: Which is something that is demonstrably true because the last time they tried to do anything with NHS data, everyone went, wait one second, you've implemented this in a way that is crazy and no one trusts it.
2: And we're opting out. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, the other way to do it is to eliminate privacy laws, right? And to Mm -hmm. eliminate consent. And then you can just do it by fiat.
1: I mean, you can. But then it comes back to... If bad things happen to you when you give your data to your healthcare provider, how bad does your health have to be before you see your healthcare Indeed. provider?
2: And how full are your disclosures? Yeah. Do you tell them if you have a drugs problem? Do you tell them if you are depressed? Do you tell them if I mean, we have this problem in the US. Less now in the wake of Obamacare, but where you had limitations on cover based on pre-existing conditions, a lot of people just didn't want to tell their GP about something bad because it would impair their ability to get insurance
1: how NHS one, actually about public-private partnerships is NHS contracted with Amazon. And the idea was pretty good. Like you would ask your Amazon device a medical question, the response would come from the NHS website. Mm-hmm. seems entirely reasonable. I think we asked the NHS for the Amazon contract and it came back heavily redacted yeah. on the basis that Amazon has, I can't remember what it's called, corporate privacy. You yeah, know, yeah. Like yeah. Commercial, confidentiality.
2: commercial confidentiality. Commercial confidentiality. This happened with the BBC as well. So the BBC, when I was on The Guardian, the BBC did a DRM deal. And they gave testimony to Ofcom explaining why they wanted to have DRM on publicly financed material. And Ofcom said they could do it. And they redacted the publication of the rationale, right, of the stuff that the BBC told them. And I knew it was bullshit. (laughs) And I procured a copy of the unredacted material and published it in The Guardian. And it was bullshit. (laughs) Right, But it was cloaked in this corporate confidentiality. And it's interesting because this is an area where public-private partnerships can actually do good is where procurement rules can enforce policy. So we were talking about interoperability before. One of the things that we could do for interop is say, no public money will be spent on technology unless the vendor promises not to block interoperability. This is a very old and honorable procurement principle. Lincoln only bought rifles for the Union Army that came with standard tooling and ammo for some pretty obvious reasons, right? Sorry, guys, we're not fighting today. They decided not to give us any ammo, right? So, you know, that's a pretty bedrock principle. During the uh, 2008 election campaign, Obama, you may remember, did these fireside chats on YouTube and they were very popular. And when he won the presidency, YouTube was very anxious to have him continue them, but he said, "Well, it's the privacy questions of the data acquisition that Google does make it impossible for me to do this." And they said, "No problem. We are going to build a parallel infrastructure. It's called YouTube No Cookie. Sorry, No Cookie YouTube. I can't remember which one it was. But if you pre-pended No Cookie or appended No Cookie to YouTube before the com, you got a parallel website that looked and acted exactly like YouTube but did not load or set a cookie." Wow. And and it was available for every video on YouTube, and I, I think it's no longer there. So around the same time, the NHS put Facebook like buttons on disease pages, on, on illness <laughs> pages, which again, not a terrible idea in as much as you might want people to be able to stick it in their stream, right? That was what the like button was for. I have just found out that I have incipient cataracts and I'm going to like it and that way other people can know and they'll know what's going on in my life and whatever. It'll show up in my stream. The problem is that those like buttons are ongoing continuous non-consensual telemetry. Every time you land on a page that has a like button, it is generating data for Facebook whether or not you click it or or have a Facebook account. So the NHS could have said to Facebook, give us a no cookie like button, right? A button that only works when you interact with it and not otherwise. You know, the story that Facebook wants to tell and the other big tech companies want to tell is that they cannot be decomposed. That there is no Facebook without surveillance, right? There's no Google without surveillance. You know, some guy with a long beard came down off a mountain with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergey, stop rotating your log files and start mining them for actionable market (laughs) intelligence. Right? That's not true, right? It is an optional bolt-on to search. And the way that we know this, is that Google was the surveillance-free search engine.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And same with Facebook. Facebook was the surveillance-free alternative to MySpace, right? So you could run these companies, not on a business level, but on a technical level, without the surveillance. The business questions are separate and, frankly, not our problem because they're not charities. Right. If they want to be given according to their need, and we'll take from them, and then we take from them according to their ability, they should find some venture communists to back them. Because if they're going to be backed by venture capitalists, they're going to treat them like capitalist firms. And if they make us an offer that's not good, we don't have to accept it. We can resist that offer.
3: But also, Google's first advertising product was contextual advertising. It was like Google search. It wasn't relying on all the tracking that. That's that right. Actually did. Yeah, yeah.
2: It was it was content based ads. It was selling keywords. Yeah. So you know, the separability is really. Important important because the problem with Facebook isn't that the people that you love are there and easy to message. The problem is that they spy on you comprehensively from asshole to appetite, retain the data and exploit it in every conceivable way and leak it like crazy and are a terrible firm, right? But like the part where you're talking to your friends is good. And you know, one of the things about interoperability is it's a way to go a la carte instead of pre fees. I will take the magazine content you're serving but not the tracking beacons you know if we are i I don't like the term but if we do have an information economy an information economy has to include bargaining it can't just be you know fiat offers you know you you walk through the door of the shop the shopkeeper reaches into your pocket takes out your wallet counts out as much money as they think is fair for your visit and then puts your wallet back in your pocket right there's got to be some bargaining and you know the way that you bargain is by blocking the parts of the technology that you don't like. You know, when when the web was young, there were these pop-up ads. The pop-up ads were really obnoxious. They would spawn multiple pop-up ads when you went to a page. They would be one pixel wide and one pixel deep, and they would run away from your cursor, and they'd autoplay music, and they'd do all kinds of terrible things. And the way that we got rid of them was not by legislating against them. It was by having pop-up blockers show up in browsers by default. And, you know, once... Pop-up ads became invisible. They became undesirable to advertisers. You know, no, no advertiser went to a publisher and said, I demand that you serve ads that no one will see. And so that was the end of them. So, you know, we got different ads. We got ads that were differently invasive, less invasive in some ways, more invasive in others. And what we didn't get was the ongoing negotiation that would have found an equilibrium different from we just spy on everything all the time forever.
3: So something I find really interesting about that is when it comes to online advertising, how the entire ecosystem has switched and has transformed to accommodate these big tech companies. And so we've done a lot of work on EdTech PI And over the past few years, we've talked to companies that are trying to reinstate contextual advertising, so uh-huh. advertising that only works on the content of the page. And they're trying to make it the big thing, showing that you can make as much revenue as a publishers. Yeah. It's privacy protecting and so on and so forth. And they were trying to integrate with some of the existing stack of online advertising, namely real-time bidding (RTB). Yeah, and they found out that they couldn't because they had to provide a certain level of details on the people they were targeting, right. which they didn't have. Right. So. I, I find it fascinating how, like structurally, it has changed to make this the default, whereas it it doesn't have to be.
2: Yeah, well, it's you know, it's like trying to open a bicycle-friendly shopping center in a place where there's mandatory parking requirements for all retail premises, mm. and you know, you're just not impedance matched. Like you just end up in this circumstance where it's like, well okay, now I have to have this giant wasteland of blacktop in front of my shopping center. Even though everyone who turns up is on a bicycle, this is completely useless. And then nobody turns up on a bicycle because you've got all that parking and yeah. it just becomes a disaster. And you know, and those you, kinds you, of big dramatic changes are hard to make. Thankfully, when it, when we're talking about digital, at least you don't have the same physical lock-in. Digital lock-in is real, but it's much harder to get rid of things like motorways parking lots yeah you know than it is to get rid of this other stuff yeah
3: although arguably google is currently like working on what's the next parking lot it's gonna look like uh, with their privacy sandbox and they're trying to make it a protocol and get everybody to agree on it so but i yeah i agree it's just like when you're laying the foundations like this that brings a lot of risks
2: and this is one of those areas where the surging antitrust ethos around the world actually acts as a check against Google's worst instincts, right? That You know, I remember when we were doing DRM standardization at the World Wide Web Consortium for video, which was a catastrophe. And and I kept saying, you know, this is all per se violations of the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act. These are antitrust violations. And people in the meeting who were just, you know, clobbering me, even though I was right as a technical matter. We're saying, yeah, but like nobody enforces those laws. Like I might as well be talking about the Code of Hammurabi, right? Like it doesn't matter that this violates these laws. Well, today, when Margaret Vestager and Lena Kahn and all these other antitrust enforcers are handing down these gigantic fines, and also when huge mergers like Facebook Giphy, which should be called Jiffy,
0: <laughs>
2: uh, are, are being shut down by the CMA. These firms don't want to be on the wrong side of the CMA. We we
3: did intervene in that with the CMA. We pushed really hard against that. So I'm really glad you mentioned it. (laughs) CMA (laughs) is a
2: landmark. You know what we need to do for the CMA though? Is we need to get them secondary legislation to empower the digital markets unit. Because the digital markets unit is the largest technical antitrust unit in the world. I think they have 50 full-time engineers or 80. I can't remember which one it is. Huge staff. And the secondary legislation that gives them enforcement powers was never passed. So they produce these 400 page reports on ad tech and mobile and so on. Brilliant. And then they can't enforce on them. So what is happening is the European Union, which has lots of enforcement powers, but not a lot of headcount, is using these as roadmaps. And since big tech is everywhere, you don't, like there's no way that they would make a ruling regarding Facebook in, in Brussels that wouldn't redound across all of the United Kingdom. It's still doing some benefit, but it would be so much better God, it, like, it is so wasteful and idiotic. But enforcement
1: right? is the big problem in almost all big tech legislation. Like, the GDPR is lovely. It's great. Yeah. But enforcement is a huge issue and funding you know data protection authorities is a huge yep. issue. And they can make all of the fantastic announcements that they want they can even find people but unless they're finding everyone all the time it becomes a huge issue like clearview who we've been chasing from data protection authority data protection authority what four fines have come down i think three of which are the biggest fines possible about about 20 million euros one from the uk is about 7.5 million euros i think pounds but even that like Clearly, mm. haven't paid any of them.
2: Right, yeah. Ireland mm. has entered the chat. Mm. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and I think that it's not just that enforcement is hard, although enforcement is hard, and again, this is one of the problems with monopolies, is monopolies can do the cost-benefit calculus, we're hiring a never-ending orc army of white shoe firms from the city to show up and explain why they shouldn't have to pay anything is cheaper than paying it. They can.
1: But they, even paying it, like, you know, I know it's on a personal level, but quite often if the criminal punishment is a fine, sure. it's legal for rich people. <laughs> the
2: fine is the price. Yeah. Absolutely. But also, again, if the maximum fine is X million pounds and the firm is worth X billion pounds, that's when the fine becomes a price. I mean, it, we are seeing more of these rules structured about 10% of annual yeah. daily turn uh, annual turnover these much bigger numbers. But still, you're right that there is this problem, but the other problem is that corruption begets corruption. So the reason that all of these firms are domiciled in Ireland is because Ireland is an international tax haven, right? Ireland allows these firms to maintain the fiction that their money is in a state of untaxable grace somewhere over the Irish Sea and what that means is that these firms are important structurally to the Irish economy and therefore able to influence Irish enforcement policy on all matters, not just tax matters because Ireland is now structured around it. They're basically a company town for tax accountants for big tech firms. And so that whatever they want, they get, right? And so this militates for uh, de-siloing of the questions that we all work on. It's You're never just working on privacy. You're never just working on digital rights. You're working on corporate power and corruption.
0: This goes back to a conversation Elliot and I have often as we're trying to pick our targets, who we're gonna go after and what we're gonna do to them in order yeah. to get some kind of change. And what you're describing is a form of global corruption, essentially. Mm-hmm. In one hand, you have global corruption. On the other hand, you have the regulatory state. And in the middle, we exist. And going after a company nowadays, unless you're going to get them front row, center, and the target of the regulatory state, what else are you going to get them to do in order to pay attention to you? Mm-hmm. You know, There's no longer that, that mass protest you can organize against an ad tech firm. You actually have to get a regulatory complaint against them. But then, because of the full circle of... Ireland being the final destination, nothing meaning anything once it gets to there. What do we do? And this is a very depressing kind of situation. So I'm curious to bring us back to your book and the next book you're looking at when you get to the systemic level. How do you make sure we're actually moving the ball?
2: So in the book, we don't address tax issues. And so I don't have an answer for you on tax issues, but I can give you some of our copyright and fairness issues. So if you um, have a royalty arrangement with a publisher, chances are... That contract is consummated in one of four jurisdictions, right? It'll either be California, New York, or Nashville, or Tennessee because of Nashville, or Washington State because of Amazon. And that contract will probably give you the right to audit your publisher or label or studio's books when you get a royalty statement to make sure that that you aren't being ripped off. Most of us will never do that, but some people get to either because they think there's something up and they find the money to do it, or, you know, a lot of arts organizations do a random audit on behalf of one of their members every your kind of a lucky dip. And if you find money that's in your favor, which happens often, you know, this really surprised us. We cited some research from a firm that had done tens of thousands of record label audits, and they found lots of money, lots of irregularities. And for reasons that we cannot explain, in all but one of those cases... That money was owed to the artist, not the other way around. I can only assume it was some kind of horrific localized probability storm. <laughs> but when you find that money, you know, the label of the studio, the publisher is apt to say, I think you're mistaken. We don't owe you anything. You're going to have to sue us, which obviously you can't afford to do. But given that we're such good-natured slobs, i tell you what, we'll settle with you. That's some fraction. But you're going to have to sign a non-disclosure, And also, your auditor is going to have to promise not to work for anyone else who wants to audit our books. This is like the um, guy who suspected a murder saying to the forensics team, guys, dig anywhere in the garden you'd like, except for that corner. I'm very sentimental about it. <laughs> but anywhere else, you can just go and dig. And so what this means is that you don't get to go to people who are similarly situated, who've had their money stolen, and say, here's where the money they stole from you is. And you know, one of our sources had a six-figure discrepancy in their favor. And so we're talking about a lot of goddamn money. And because contract is a matter of state law and because we're only talking about four states, if one or more of those states were to pass a short bill that said, as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure is not enforceable when it pertains to material omissions or errors in royalty statements that were down to the detriment of someone owed royalties for creative work, those four short bills would put more money into the pockets of more creators all over the world because that's where the contracts are consummated than all the copyright term extensions of the last 40 years combined. So that's the kind of structural change that I'm talking about, right? Passing state bills is not easy, but it's a lot easier than, say, reforming the Irish tax system.
1: Like another example is the FTC can now order algorithmic destruction?
2: Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, that right. That is really cool. The fruit of the poison tree, mm-hmm. right? I mean, again, I don't know how you administer it. I mean, I guess the way that they're planning to administer it is by having such stonking fines that they assume companies will do it because the cost of failing to do so is so intense. But I'm sure you saw the inside look at Amazon's data handling practices. So Amazon just like the part of their like rapid product development project. Is that they let anyone internally any team clone the full database of all user transactions and pii and they have no audit log they don't know who's got the data they've had tons of insider attacks they get people selling data to rival merchants they get people selling data to stalkers governments whatever right like all kinds of really ugly stuff and for them I wonder how amidst all this chaos, they would ever figure out whether or not they were doing it. I mean, I think this is probably the case generally with privacy law, that firms that have no privacy auditing, no privacy tools, suddenly find themselves on the wrong side of a compliance rule. And they have to refactor their whole business process from the bottom up, which, you know, can feel onerous. Like it's one of the things that makes it possible to pass and then administer a, r- a rule as whether or not it's onerous to enforce. But on the other hand, prohibiting people from using asbestos is a very onerous rule <laughs> at a time I in which it. asbestos I is have everywhere. It in
1: my house.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Prohibiting landlords from letting out Homes that have asbestos is also very onerous, but like eventually we just do it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if if you are in business selling radium suppositories and we ban radium suppositories, you're going to have to really rethink your business from the bottom up. It, that's not a reason not to, from the bottom up. That's not a reason not to ban radium suppositories.
1: I mean, the hole in the ozone layer is closing because of massive regulatory right. change in action. Right, it works. I mean, it just sucks if you're selling. Terrible fridges with terrible gases yeah. that are destroying the Arizona. Bad
2: hairspray cans. <laughs> yeah. Uh...
1: And one of the things actually we've been getting more into, even though you know, you tell people we're getting really excited about procurement rules, we're getting mm-hmm. really into national level procurement, but procurement rules are one of the really interesting, 100%. outdated, terrible <laughs> ways that it should be fairly, or in theory, in a lot of ways, an open goal for change. Because one of the things we've seen it, not to go back to the NHS, but Palantir, the NHS and all of their government contracts, a lot of the time they sidle up and they say, hey, would you like all of our software for a pound? Yes. No one can undermine a pound. A pound right. is the cheap it says ever, ever, ever going to be. And if procurement rules prioritize cost over good software or good legal data practices, then they're always going to yes. fail to
2: And do as it. I discovered when I wrote about this, there are a lot of weird Palantir stands on Twitter who will show up and tell you that Palantir is the greatest company ever.
1: And yet cannot describe what Palantir do. No. They don't know.
2: Well one of them told me that Palantir is the greatest supplier of human rights in the world.
1: Oh wow <laughs> also
2: that they killed Osama bin Laden.
1: Wow, those uh, are interesting claims. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, it's it's good to know where who you call if you've got a purchase order for some human rights and you <laughs> want to get filled.
3: <laughs> when you were describing how creators can you know you were describing YouTubers get, can get their videos down uh, after a copyright strike. For me, it really echoes what we did with drivers for Uber and Deliveroo. So last year, we had a campaign and we met with drivers that had been completely like removed from apps uh-huh. from one day to the other, and it was really like, you wake up, you're ready to get in your car and start working, and you've actually been banned. And you're offered no explanation, you have no way of knowing what led to this decision, and the entire process to get there is painful. You try to get in touch with the support, nobody has any idea, it's just like this, you're faced with a machine and nobody is really even trying to give you answers. And so I was wondering from your perspective, there is obviously work to be done on a regulatory and legal side. There's work to be done with the companies. But at this stage, is there something you can still recommend to the workers, the drivers, the creators?
2: Like, what kind of power do they hold? Well, one of the things we talk about in the book is the power of solidarity. And in the United States, Uber drivers in California had been subject to systemic wage theft. They had been bound over to something called a mandatory arbitration, which meant that they could not sue Uber. And more importantly, they couldn't form a class action to sue Uber because they had been required to have all of their disputes with Uber heard by a fake judge who was a contractor of Uber's, an arbitrator working for Uber. And you know these arbitration clauses, there's a lot of data now on them, arbitration unsurprisingly goes in the favor of the firm that pays the arbitrator far more often than a real court case. And even when the person who's wrong gets a win and a settlement out of the case, it's much less than the firm would pay otherwise. And so they were stuffed, but they figured out how to automate arbitration claims. And so individual arbitration claims cost relatively large amounts of money compared to, say, one class action suit. And they filed hundreds of thousands of arbitration claims en masse. And Uber went before the court and said, Your Honor... What kind of idiot would think that this binding arbitration clause was enforceable? <laughs> Only a fool could look at this and say that it was anything but manifestly unfair. We insist that we should be released from this clause that up until like last week we were insisting that we should never <laughs> no one should ever be released from. And in the end, Uber gave the drivers one hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow, that's
3: brilliant and
2: there's a copyright scholar who's quite brilliant named James Boyle, a Scotsman, but he teaches at Duke University, he runs the Center for the public domain with Jennifer Jenkins and Jamie has this analogy he draws to the ecology movement and the term ecology. And he talks about the ozone layer. And he says that before the term ecology came along, if you cared about the ozone layer and I cared about owls, how are we on the same side, right? You're worried about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere. I'm worried about charismatic nocturnal avians. These are not obviously the same issue, but the term ecology takes a thousand issues and makes one movement out of them. And one of the things about choke point capitalism is that it's a critique of corporate power and there are a lot of people on the wrong side of corporate power. There are a lot of people at the pointy end of corporate power. There are a lot of people in choke point relationships. So Uber is a classic choke point. You have drivers who want to drive, passengers who want rides, you've got an hourglass shaped market where the drivers can't contact the riders and the riders can't contact the drivers without going through a gateway that Uber controls and Uber extracts as much value as they can at that gateway. Well, how can we open up that gateway? One of the ways we can do it is by forming solidaristic networks between lots of different people who are sat in these choke points. So you have people who are modifying algorithms for creators. But in Indonesia, you have this rise of these things called Tuyul apps, which is studied by a woman. Her surname is Quadri, Q-A-D-R-I, uh, doctoral researcher.
1: We'll find it. We'll add it to the discussion.
2: she's She's terrific. And Tuyul apps are mods for gig work delivery apps. So like some of them are very straightforward, they're like, you're older and the type is too small, here's the thing that lets you make the type bigger. But some of them are much more profound, so the dispatch apps won't assign you a ride at a train station unless you're right out front. When the trains come in, it's too crowded out front, it's really dangerous. So the drivers have GPS spoofers for their dispatch apps. They wait around the corner, they tell the app that they're at the train station. And then when they get a ride they zip in they zip out it's actually much safer it's better for the passengers better Mm -hmm. for the drivers the drivers know more about what's going on than the people who are designing these apps and the same is going on with things like algorithm modifications for creative workers who are on these platforms it's the same notion the same tool set the same skill set the same ethos and you could imagine that between labor organizing technical cooperatives that there's some crossover there where, where they could help each other figure this stuff out and also help each other do things like automate arbitration claims. You know?
1: <laughs> so you said your publisher said, or a publisher said, that the lack of individual actions or individual things people could do bum them out. Yeah. But joining these movements for systemic change are individual actions. That's
2: true. The thing that you can do as an individual is figure out how you can become part of a group. Exactly. Yes, that's right. And then work with a
1: group. Yeah, and write letters to your MP, congressperson, representative, local council, board of education, you know, all the way down, all the way back up.
2: And more importantly, get involved with a group that is running letter writing campaigns. So it's not just one letter that your MP gets. I mean, speaking as someone who lived in a labor safe seat forever and wrote lots of letters to Meg Hillier, who is my MP, who just would basically send a letter back going, you know, thank you very much. Go fuck yourself.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I've I've received many. Yeah. I've read your letter. I disagree. Here is why I disagree. And also, fuck you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So these people, you know, like it's one letter isn't going to change their mind, but lots will. And -hmm. this was the lesson of the SOPA, you know, melt the switchboard thing where we put 8 million phone calls through the congressional switchboard in 24 hours and melted it down. And congressmen who'd sponsored a, a bad bill lined up on the congressional floor to denounce that bill as a terrible piece of legislation that had their name on it.
1: I think the environment that we live in now, you get so many asks for, please sign this petition, yeah. sign this petition, do this, do that. And the thing it's easy to forget is that it really works. Yeah, if you can get works. critical mass. If you can get critical mass, which of course becomes increasingly hard as things become more and more atomized and the demands on people's time get higher and higher. But if you join a group and you do a collective action and you're in a community of people trying, it feels a lot better than being out on your own feeling bad.
2: And this is why coalitions are important, because you can't pay attention to everything that matters to you, Mm -hmm. but you can find other groups that are working on the parts of the puzzle that you don't have time for, but that are still important.
0: But let's be clear, it is a puzzle. And the challenge of coalitions is that everybody has a different understanding of what is the key part of the puzzle.
2: I get that. And I I just
0: wonder, on top of creating a movement, which is very important, on top of creating a coalition, which is also very important. These are two very hard things to do, right? Isn't there a third? And I'm curious if you got there with your systems work, just picking the right target at the right time in the right way and like the cutting of the Gordian knot type of approach, which is you can find that moment.
2: I guess you can. You know, for me, it's more like iteration. So, you know, Amazon talks about itself having this flywheel, right? Which is that, you suck customers in with low prices. You lock them in with Prime. That brings in merchants who add more SKUs and are willing to sell a lower price. That brings in more customers who then attract more merchants and depress costs more. You get more economies of scale. The flywheel spins faster and faster. It gains all this inertia. It produces excess capital that can be used to cross-subsidize things like predatory pricing for the Kindle to corner the market for ebooks, All these things that they talk about is a virtuous cycle. And to slow down that flywheel, you need to find ways to apply brakes at different parts of its turn and anything that slows down the flywheel helps you everywhere else. You know, L- Larry Lessig has this idea that social change comes from code, norms, laws and markets, right? Things that are technically possible, things that are lawful, things that are socially acceptable and things that are profitable all kind of interact and each of them affect a change. So, you know, if if it's normatively considered rude to ask people on your kid's sports team to get on a high surveillance platform to do normal planning, then there is a market for privacy-centric platforms. And there is scope for a law that limits data collection because it becomes less normal and more abnormal to have data collection happening. And the technological tools that allow you to assert privacy on those platforms are considered moral and just rather than hacking and stealing because you are enhancing something that is widely considered to be good, right? So that iteration is very important. And you know, the fact that everybody in the coalition thinks that their corner of the puzzle is the most important isn't necessarily wrong in as much as there can be a lot of things that are necessary but insufficient preconditions for change. And, you know, if they are genuinely necessary, then we do have to get to them sometime. They are really important.
1: So you've been writing and working around digital rights issues for over 20 years now. Yeah. Is there anything that you didn't expect to still be talking about now?
2: Yeah, actually, that's the the <laughs> the, the um, fights over, over lawful interception and in crypto bans. I have a standard article I used to post with a title with like, oh, oh, fuck, not this bullshit again. <laughs> and it was just a picture of like a face palming person that I found on Flickr that was Creative Commons licensed. But, and it was just like explaining what it means. To ban working encryption in national borders, like what it would actually entail, Mm. how far reaching that mandate would have to be. And I can't believe we're still talking about it. I guess the other thing that I'm baffled that we're still talking about is copyright filters. Although I can see why it's because machine learning snake oil grifters have convinced (laughs) credulous idiots that you can make working copyright filters by sprinkling AI on them. Like Axel Vos, who is the rapporteur on the copyright directive, who said, of course an AI can tell what a meme is and what isn't. Just type meme into Google image search and you'll see that Google can tell what a meme is and what isn't.
1: You wrote Little Brother 12, 15 years ago?
2: I wrote it in 2006. So, right. Yeah.
1: And Little Brother features a lot of different education technologies, which are now kind of cycling back around in different forms. Yeah. And one of the questions that occurred to me was a lot of Latin American countries have public procurement rules for schools around open source technology, mm-hmm. whereas America Europe, they don't have the same emphasis on open source. Right. And obviously open source doesn't solve all problems, but yeah. open source helps, right?
2: Yeah. So free and open source software is important. I actually gave a talk about this to the Free Software Foundation's annual conference a few years ago, that the two poles that they think about are proprietary and open. And proprietary is bad because you have to go through the laborious work of reverse engineering it to make it open Mm. or free. But there's another pole that makes proprietary and open look like they're at one end And the thing that's at the other end is technology that's illegal to reverse engineer. Right. Which is technology with digital rights management, technology where you have tortious interference with contract theories that prevent you from reverse engineering parts of it, or technology where there are patents involved and so on. There are ways to overlap different regulations to make it Sometimes a, a jailable offense, right? Bypassing DRM in the US carries a $500,000 fine and a five year prison sentence for a first offense. And so that is like so much worse than anything else. And I think that our focus on free versus unfree has taken our eye off the prize. And moreover, it has promulgated what I think is like incorrect and maybe dangerously incorrect idea that it is transcendentally hard to reverse engineer and replicate unfree software, unfree technology. That like only a sorcerer could do it unless you have the sources, unless unless someone gives you the code. Nah. No one's going to make alternative firmware for an Alexa or whatever. And it's just not true, <laughs> right? It is like it's a lot of work. It could be capital intensive. You know, if you if you look back to kind of the foundational fights of free software movement, they're not about the fact that people like Richard Stallman couldn't write his own printer drivers, right? It was that he had stuff to do and literally the paper tape with the printer driver had been locked in a drawer so that he couldn't change it so that he could make it do what he wanted. And so instead of doing the stuff he had to do, he needed to replicate the printer driver. Right? And it's a lot of work. And he had other things to do with his time. So he was like, if we're going to have to figure out how the printer driver works, we should just do it once. We'll all share that printer driver, mod it however we want. No one will ever lock it in a drawer. <laughs> and somehow over the years that has become, unless the sources are available, no one will ever be able to make a compatible product or service. And I, I just don't think that's right. I do think that it's good for software to be free and open. But I think that far more important is for firms to abjure the right to use the courts to prohibit people from reverse engineering their tools. And this came up in the World Wide Web Consortium when they were standardizing digital rights management, which shamefully the BBC was on the wrong side of. And what had happened was that Netflix and the studios had said to the consortium, we are not going to support browsers anymore. We're just going to be in apps unless you standardize DRM because the browsers were getting better and better at preventing software from reaching into the operating system and doing stuff that was adverse to users because that's bad. But DRM is adverse to users. Mm -hmm. And so the sandboxes that the browsers were operating in were not able to do things like lock the user out of recapturing video and audio that was playing in the browser. Because in order to do that, you have to go very deep into the operating system. And so they said, we need to standardize a way that browsers can effectively break out of their sandboxes and go straight to the lowest parts of the operating system and boss the user around, right? Like prohibit the user from doing things the user wants to do. And the World Wide Web Consortium was like, if we don't still have streaming video in browsers, the browsers will become unimportant and then that will be the end of the web, right? Everything will become apps. And so, you know, again, these are very concentrated sectors, the studios are very concentrated, the browsers are very concentrated, the DRM companies are very concentrated, the streamers are very concentrated, and they all got together and they said, we are going to ram this through. And so the W3C has this policy that if you're on a W3C committee, you have to promise not to use your patents to attack people who implement the standard your committee is developing. So, you know, it's just a, it's it's there are lots of different versions of this at different standards bodies, but it's really important that standards be freely implementable. You know, one of the ways that standards can go horribly wrong is that a firm can join a standards committee and then add an element to the standard without disclosing that they hold a patent over that element because people can see the standard coming. So the big one is Rambus, so it was making RAM. So people were building factories to adhere to a standard. and then, like, Once the standard published and the factory was done, they said, surprise, you're all going to have to pay us rent to, to operate your factory, right? So this is really important. So we said, all right, you've got this IPR, you've got this IP rights policy that says you can't use the legal rights that you get from the government to stop people from implementing the standard. One of those legal rights is the right to stop people from reverse engineering the content module to make new ones. We should have, we should expand the IPR policy at the W3C to say that if you have one of these anti-circumvention rights, you won't use it to clobber people who implement the standard, which is very consistent. And they said, absolutely not. And so then we tried narrower and narrower versions. So we tried, you should be able to do this for the purposes of accessibility. Because one of the things that they said is this is going to be more accessible than any of the video streaming tools that it currently exists, which it was. And we said, okay, it is more accessible, but there are some accessibility features you don't have that you could have right now that you've just chosen not to implement. And there will be other ones in the future, right? So, like, we worked with um, Dan Kaminsky, who sadly died during COVID, but Dan is a legendary security researcher and hacker. And one of the things that he built was a tool that would assess which gamut you could see in if you had color blindness and then shift all the colors in a moving image into a gamut that you could see. And the first time he did it for someone, she cried because it was the first time she'd ever seen a movie in true color, right? Colors that she could see. That wasn't in there. That could have been in there, but it wasn't. And it could have been implemented by reverse engineering the content module, but they would have prohibited it. And then in the future, you could imagine that maybe machine learning systems would catch up to doing descriptive tracks. Right now, they're nowhere near close enough. Or doing captioning, which they're much closer to, but still not there on. And, you know, doing that processing was not a thing that you could do without changing the content module. Or, you know, in terms of things that you could do right away, people who have photosensitive epilepsy can have terrible seizures triggered by movies. I had a friend who had four grand mal seizures in a row while watching Netflix and was then hospitalized. And that's really easy to solve with software. You just look ahead and you say, oh, well, here's a thing where you see the gamma strobing a lot. I'm just going to either cut that sequence out, dampen it, warn the user, pause. I mean, there are like a hundred ways you could manage it and the user could choose based on their idiosyncratic photosensitiveness. But none of that was implementable. And so we said, let's just have that, right? Immunity for people who reverse engineer the DRM to add accessibility features. They said no. So then finally, apropos you guys, privacy, right? They said. You know, one of the things that this is going to do is implement a strong privacy sandbox that is stronger than anything any of the video services are doing, which it did. And we said, okay, but what if it's got defects, right? There's no way to provably make something secure. The only way to make it secure is to subject it to third-party scrutiny. What if someone finds a defect and the firm that made the tool threatens them with criminal or civil action if they disclose to users? that the privacy promises that they made aren't true which is a thing that happens all the time we at EFF have to defend those yeah. programmers those coders all the time and again they said no and so this is the way that standards can get in the way of things but also the way that standards could have been used as a lever to force something open
1: standards is one of the things we're exploring as part of like future work on edtech is how to best utilize standards to make mm-hmm. education technology work good in the context of, you know, children's private data and very, right. very, very small children. The number of weird education technologies that are being sold is like, hey, this will help toddlers. Right. Education technology for toddlers. Right. You want to be collecting sensitive private information on the learning about toddlers, but also as toddlers pass through it's not even school, it's kindergarten, it's right. nursery, Pre-K. yeah. On on how they're learning, I guess, the alphabet? Right, And you want to collect that data and keep it for potentially their entire life?
2: I mean, you can see how, again, back to the NHS, Mm. uh, a research program that did that might make a difference. My mom is a pedagogist whose Mm -hmm. doctorate is in early childhood education. She oversees doctoral candidates. They sometimes do studies on things like that, Yeah, right? But the idea that it's just being done willy-nilly. And again, to go back to the W3C thing, the, the other thing I wanted to add is that from a free software traditional analysis, the problem with this code is that it's unfree, that it's not open. But what we were arguing for was something that was that was m- much more foundational, which is the right to make it free without going to prison, mm. right? And I think that if we can't agree that you should have that, then the rest kind of goes out the window.
1: Yeah. And it comes back to undue corporate protections, right? Like companies don't need or shouldn't need in... A reasonable, you know, market economy and an, even a functioning version of capitalism. Wherever you feel about capitalism, the capitalism described by, you know, Friedrich Hayek, of John Keynes, Adam Smith set the standards of what capitalism is and, in theory, should look like. It's not the version that they described either.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, back to procurement. I said, you know, Lincoln would only buy rifles with interoperable tooling. It's a lesson the military's forgotten. I don't want the American military to be better, but boy, is there some low-hanging fruit there. So, so a lot of the aerospace programs in the U.S. they use these primary contractors, these giant firms. This happened under um, Obama. The, there was these shotgun weddings where they said, there's just too many of these big aerospace contractors for us to manage. You're going to have to all merge down to four or five which just a terrible piece of policy anyway. So those big primary contractors, they have this ecosystem of secondary contractors that they source parts from. Big private equity funds have gone through these secondary ones and found all the single source suppliers where like there's a widget and they have the patent on it and they're the only ones who make it and it's used somewhere in aerospace and they've bought those firms and they've rolled them up. And then they offer those parts at an enormous discount to the primary suppliers, so that there are as many of these parts as possible in the things they sell to the U.S. military. But when the U.S. military orders spares, they come at 10,000% markups. And so it's, it's like, again, like, what congressman or congresswoman or senator could not stand up on the floor of the legislature and introduce a bill to curb this, denouncing this, and arguing that the American military is too important to have these ridiculous games played with it and not not score points. Like mm. it is amazing that we have these these really easy kind of red meat issues that you'd think would be such an easy sell politically. Where they're just sitting on their hands like they just they just don't want the easy win. Mm. You know, I kind of want to go just like I want to go smack them around and say, like, look, this is like rather than grandstanding about idiotic things like, you know, whether there's a drag queen story hour at the (laughs) library or whatever. Take an issue that like your right wing conservative base will go, Jesus Christ, that's terrible. We should like pillory those motherfuckers, promise them that you're going to do it. And then, like, just reap the political gains, for God's sake.
1: Yeah. The things that should be easy. The things that feel like they're just so simple and you can't get people to, like, just just think about it for two seconds, please. We're giving you a gift. Yeah. What is the optimistic version of the future? Or what is the pessimistic version? Well, of the I future? guess
2: the optimistic version is that we start to see different anti-monopoly, anti-corporate power movements starting to overlap with one another, starting to to become an ecology movement instead of a bunch of issues. Even in small ways, if we were to see that, that would be gigantic. The fact that there's so much cross-border cooperation on antitrust at the regulatory level is very interesting. You know, the Competition Markets Authority linking arms with the European Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. It's really cool, you know, and they are under-resourced, but collectively, they actually are well-resourced. And since they're fighting the same companies over the same fact patterns, it kind of doesn't matter, you know, how they divide up the labor. Like, it doesn't matter that some of the labor is being done here and some of it's being done on the other side of the Atlantic or the other side of the channel.
1: Yeah, a lot of the Clearview stuff would really like it if more DPAs went, well, the work's been done. (laughs) Like, it's the same law here. (laughs) Right. we also like some of that cash, please. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same with other companies that have this a very similar business model. Like the underlying mechanism has been shown to be breaking the law, to copy and paste the verdict, to go right. after the next one, like get that cash. <laughs>
2: can, you, can you not incentivize people to do private actions?
1: We can and... Like to an extent, we have been. I know that the CNIL's, the DPA's Clearview decision in France was partly influenced by a couple of different individuals who personally made complaints about Clearview. Uh-huh. So it is something people can do. They can DSAR Clearview, they can find out their data there, and then they can make a complaint and they can request deletion, all of which we have guides on how to do on the website. So if you're interested, um, right. <laughs> but they're not easy in a lot of ways, they should be easy. I can tweet at a company according to GDPR and say, I'd like my data, please. That's a DISA, that's right. enough. Right. The problem is then companies will follow up and they don't necessarily make it easy. They don't necessarily comply with the law, which means right. you need to know I just went response. through this with
2: CCPA, where I send a, uh, to all of the largest California data brokers. Mm. And it was from an NGO that said, like, here's a one click to get your data. And then that was a one click to fire off emails that then initiated yes. a process that was so bureaucratic I couldn't get through it.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you submit a DSAR and then the company comes back and says, we need you to prove you are who you say you are. Right. Which it's not unreasonable to of say course. before I hand you your private data. Yep. But it feels so instinctually wrong to send that company, be it Facebook, be it Clearview, be it whoever, like you know a picture of my passport or whatever, right. that people hit that step and go, oh, they want more data. Right. Oh, I'm not sure about this. right? Which is, again, an entirely reasonable and predictable yep. reaction because the problem is that they have too much data. That's the thing that you're concerned about. And then they're saying, we'd like more of it. And it's quite sensitive. Yes, please. And so say you do that. Then they have to reply. They've got within a month, I think that's the legal limit. You have to know that. You have to set a calendar reminder so that on day 30, when they haven't responded, you can go back and say, you're now breaking the law, and I will be reporting you to the ICO in in the UK unless you respond. Then you have to trust that that scares them enough. If it doesn't, because they've done it a million times, they know the ICO is not going to talk to them. Is
2: there any point at which you can get damages? No. Right. The best you can get is deletion. So if you could get damages, you could easily imagine a firm of solicitors That would do all of that work for you and then just collect lots of small sums on behalf of lots of people. Yeah, I mean, people make fun of uh, class action settlements in the U.S., which are, you know, typically like sort of 85 cents or whatever. I always cash those checks. Oh, yeah. Because the point is that if we all cash the checks, it really hurts the companies. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't give out my home address to anyone. I have a post box down the road where I Mm -hmm. get my mail. I used to, when I lived in London, get my mail across the street from where we are now in the Strand. And um, the only people who have my addresses are like people who deliver food to my house. Mm. And there's a liquor delivery service that breached. And it was one of like five entities that had my home address. And they breached my home address. And, you know, I got 87 cents, but I, by God, cashed it.
1: (laughs) And there are class actions that people have been putting together or thinking about and, you know, have been recruiting for. We've talked to legal firms that rec- mm-hmm. do recruit for the class action. But then, you know, class action in the UK, when the GDPR was moved into the Data Protection Act in the UK, the Data Protection Act 2018, I think. Article, oh Jesus, Article 30A or something like that is the is the provision that allows for a company to represent people even if they don't know that there's been a breach of their privacy. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was working at the Open Rights Group, actually, um, and we were big into trying to implement this particular article, because the problem with big privacy breaches is mostly you don't know they've happened. Right. Even people like us, like even massive privacy nerds, don't always know when and which sure. website and data they've been reached, because there are so bloody many of them. Yeah. And so it's really, really important that that groups like org at the time like pi are able to take on regulatory actions on the behalf of people who don't know you're taking them on their behalf yeah and that wasn't implemented in the uk uh, we got i think a promise to come back to it and that was the best it's we got. out
2: there in limbo with the digital Markets unit secondary legislation exactly yeah
1: and there are all these small small things that could make things so much better that are very frustrating but yeah
2: yeah Army. Yeah. <laughs> well, is that the happy ending?
1: I think so. It could be the happy ending. There's probably be a happier ending. Well, pretty well, I mean, that, a happy the happy ending. ending
2: is that there are big changes afoot. right? Yes. That antitrust, which is foundationally, you know, like, again, everyone says their thing is the most important thing. But it, <laughs> the way that you make companies small enough to, you know, force them to do other stuff, like not destroy the planet with carbon, is by making them small enough that they are regulatable, that they're mm. not too big to jail and not too big to fail. And that's what antitrust is for. And the resurgence of interest in antitrust, the bipartisan resurgence, the bihemispheric one, you know, the Chinese cyberspace law is full of amazing antitrust stuff. You know, that is very exciting. And what's interesting about the Chinese cyberspace law is you have wankers like Nick Clegg running around saying, well, if we do antitrust, then who will keep Europe's cyberspace safe from China? And then you have Xi Jinping saying like, These companies are not representing China abroad. They're representing their shareholders abroad. Jesus Christ, are going to put their leadership in a gulag? Like, you know, not that I want anyone put in a gulag, but, you know.
1: But data rules in China are so interesting. One of the first places to say facial recognition in classrooms, no thank you, China. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, China's obviously government relationship with data is very different and very specific. But when it comes to private companies, China's legislative environment is much more interesting and less permissive than people seem to think it is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. They were the ones put their foot when uh, Alibaba tried to do an ICO and raise money and go public, and they were like, "Just nope, you can't do this." Yeah. They also blocked merger with fine tech companies. They're actually quite good at preventing companies from getting oh, yeah. too big. And unre- and the
2: cyberspace regulation prohibits firms from taking actions to block interoperability for the purpose of competition. I mean, again, I'm not going to whitewash the Chinese <laughs> no. state. It's an authoritarian, <laughs> illegitimate state, but. This is all to say that if the reason we're not going to blunt corporate power in the West is because we're worried that Chinese corporations are projections of Chinese soft power abroad, we should look at the relationship of the Chinese state to those firms because the Chinese state does not trust those firms and does not treat them as their emissaries and actually treats them as their rivals.
1: The driving engine of capitalism is in theory innovation and innovation in capitalism is supposed to come from competition and a free market. And if you want to say Chinese companies, Chinese soft power scare me, then the best way of getting ahead of them would in theory be like making sure companies stay ahead of them through innovation.
2: Well, you know, back in 1982, when they were finally breaking up AT&T after 69 years of off and on trying, there was this argument that AT&T needed to be spared breakup because it was America's national champion and it defended the American tech industry against a uh, far Eastern, Asian power, authoritarian, military belligerents who stole the ideas of Americans and made cheap knockoffs called Japan. <laughs> and actually turned out that AT&T's major project was preventing Americans from buying and using modems because modems let you provide services for yourself that otherwise they could charge for. Mm-hmm. And once AT&T was broken up, we got the commercial internet, which, say what you will about it, was certainly a source of American soft power abroad for the next 40 years.
1: Yeah, I think we would keep going for about a million years. So we should, we should end here yes. so, that, so that we can free you back to your Indeed. actual life. But thank you so, so much thank for your time. You. And thank, thank you for coming. Uh,
2: lovely to see you. Thank lovely you. to meet you. Cheers, yeah. Awesome. Thanks um, for your work here and your work with the Org. Thank I, you. I, I it wasn't found, for very long. I, I helped know. found <laughs> yeah. Org. So that was exciting to hear.
0: Thanks for listening. Remember, you can tell us what you think about the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org slash pod signup, and we'll include some links to the relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website at pvcy.org slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music courtesy of Sepia. This podcast was produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.